Um, no, Red River. So do you want to know where we got Red River from? <laughs> I mean, the only other references I can think of uh, in that in the Clash song about Montgomery Clift, they mentioned the movie Red River. Okay. Well, so as much as I love the Clash, I also love Texas Chainsaw Massacre too a lot. <laughs> Okay, so um, we needed like a name for a podcast because like everything's taken. Um, and then my friend was like, hey, um, Red River is like the name of the radio station in that movie. Oh, and it was just so random. But what we didn't realize was that it's so um, aligned with like Texas that people were like, you know, at the end of the day, it was just like a, a random name for sure. I mean, I feel like there's also a song is like <clears throat> The Red River Valley? I'm sure okay. there is. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I'm sure there is. But uh um so Texas Chainsaw Massacre two, I have not seen. Texas Chainsaw Massacre one is one of the most fascinating movies ever made. Absolutely. Um and if it's not I, I don't recommend watching it because it's so disturbing. Okay. But there's one scene in it, I remember watching it when I was like fifteen that struck me so hard when they're at the dinner table, if yes. you remember. And there's the woman that they've captured, but the family is having a nice normal dinner. Granted, it's Leatherface and the possibly dead granddad, etc. And the woman who they've captured, who is the ostensibly the sane one, is screaming at the top of their lungs, top of her lungs. And it's such a fascinating contrast of like the murderous lunatics are behaving like civilized, rational people. Yeah. And the civilized, rational person is screaming at the top of her lungs. Absolutely. And, like, a lot of, like, the behind the scenes of that stuff, like, um, you know, they just said, like, how hard it was to, like, film. And you figure, and, like, so the movie came out in 74, uh, but it was filmed in 73. So it was just, like, complete chaos, very DIY, Mm -hmm. which we, you know, I know you're a big DIY guy, me too. I love just, you know, that's one of the things that drew me to punk rock is if you want to do something, just do it. That's it. So, um, and I feel like that movie was very punk rock um but yeah it could be super disturbing and and the funny thing about the second one is is that it's toby hooper the director was like where do i go from here i can't make something more ridiculous so he went in a more comedic sense um so that's why the cover of texas chainsaw massacre 2 is a knockoff of the breakfast club so they're all like set up like Mm -hmm. that and stuff so but um so Anyway, Red River Podcast. Welcome, Moby. This is pretty cool. Very happy to be here. Cool. Thank you for doing it. Um, I know that you just came from uh, Good Morning America, which is kind of like a trip, huh? Well, in hindsight, I mean, hindsight meaning it was 15 minutes ago, uh, it's arguably one of the most subversive things I think I've ever been involved in because, you know, as you know, like most of the time I'm preaching to some version of the choir you know talking interesting yeah yeah, you're right you know talking about animal rights or veganism to people who might already agree with me or at the very least are very aware of animal rights and veganism but good morning america is millions of people in middle america you know it's like millions of people with an average age probably about 60 maybe 55 very it's it's quintessential middle america and the fact i still don't know i mean thanks dana and natalie at big picture media for arranging this phenomenal act of subversion to get me on good morning america talking about 
the punk rock vegan movie. Yeah. Like it's, I still, I was texting some friends in LA and they're like, wait, hold on just a second. You were, cause there's this, they had this giant sign the entire time behind me that says punk rock vegan movie. And I was like, what is the good morning America audience making of this? Like this tattoo got this tattooed guy talking about punk rock and veganism and animal rights with this giant green and black poster behind him saying punk rock vegan movie. Like it was, yeah, it was very kind of wonderfully subversive. Love it. Um, so one of the things about the, the documentary that like stuck out to me um, is when Don from uh, the Germs says, you don't really think about it un- until you think about it. You know, so that yeah. that is something that someone watching that segment, you know, like because as a kid, like I grew up in the 90s, you grew up like late 70s, 80s. Um, health was never like food was never something I thought about. You know, and I think Ian McKay said it about, you know, until he met HR from the Bad Brains, that it was just not something that you thought about, like your, the health that you put into your food. So it's funny, like when, you, when you're on there, you can reach certain people that it's just like, you know, at a certain age where it's just like, hey, um, what I'm putting in my body definitely is uh, important. Yeah, I mean, luckily, I grew up inhabiting that paradox, as I assume you did, as I assume most people did, the paradox of loving animals unconditionally, or at the very least, liking animals, but also loving eating animals. And when you take a step back from it, it's such a baffling paradox. Like just imagine if people love children and also locked them in cages and ate them. You'd be like, that seems inconsistent, you know, yeah. like, and the fact that people love companion animals so much. I mean, I guarantee you there are people listening who love their companion animals, their dogs, their cats, way more than they like or love any of the people in their lives. But yet, still, and I'm and I'm not judging because I was this, for 19 years of my life, I lived in this paradox of unconditionally loving the companion animals that we had in our house and also unconditionally loving Burger King and pepperoni pizza. And it never for a second struck me that this was a paradox because it's the dominant it, – it's the world in which we live. It's the status quo. You know, people go home and snuggle with their dog and if you ask them to harm their dog, they would start crying and probably punch you in the face. Yeah. But then they go to McDonald's. Yeah. And that was for me the big transitional moment that I had when I was 19 years old is I suddenly realized like, oh, these rescue animals in my house, dogs, cats, have two eyes and a central nervous system, a rich emotional life and a desire to avoid pain and suffering. And in one instant, I suddenly realized, oh, every animal with two eyes and a central nervous system has a rich emotional life and a profound desire to avoid pain and suffering. And that was when I realized like, oh, I can't in good conscience be involved in any practice or process that would cause animal suffering and then so with the documentary like you got to tie both things together because a lot of people like i knew growing up in the 90s that moby was in the vatican commandos like it's just something that we knew um but like for other people like bagel the dog was saying like hey maybe you could explain it to me which i love bagels is you know big star of the movie yeah um you know and then you you basically get a chance to to tie these two worlds together because 
it's it's I don't want to say cliche to say it, but like punk rock and like you know the hardcore scene, all that stuff does teach you a lot of things more yeah. than a lot of other music. Like you know, if I'm listening to Motley Crue, they're teaching me one thing. If I'm listening to Minor Threat, they're teaching me another thing. You know, so I mean that's that's what really made me want to make the movie. I mean, partially it's just that. I'm trying to use whatever resources I have and whatever platforms I have to address animal rights and to try and move the needle away from this current meat and dairy status quo. But there are a lot of vegan movies. There are a lot of animal rights movies, and they're well-intentioned, oftentimes incredibly well-produced, but they tend to not tell a story or they tend to not address a question. And I feel like if you want people to engage with a movie, with content, you sort of have to provide them with a little mystery, like a little content, a little question, which is, in this case, how in the world did punk rock, which most people, like you and I excluded, but a lot of people think it's just chaos. Sure. You know, like I brought some friends to an H2O Youth of Today show, and they ran screaming. And they were like... <laughs> And not in a good way. They were yeah, like, yeah. this is – look at look at these people are beating the shit out of each other. It's so violent, so aggressive. They're screaming. And I was like, yeah, but these are the most principled musicians on the planet. It is interesting. And right? if you could sit down and look at the lyrics, you'd realize like, oh, these are some of the most thoughtful, principled lyrics that anyone has ever written. Mm. But 99.9% .9 of the people on the planet don't know that. And so that's what I wanted to – do a sort of spark people's curiosity by saying, look, here is punk rock, which you might think is chaos. Lo and behold, pull back the curtain. It's actually incredibly thoughtful and principled. Because um, you're right. One of the depressing aspects of making this movie was realizing how anodyne and apolitical 99% of musical genres are. You know, And I love indie rock i love alternative sure. music i love so many different types of music but like it's almost i mean like it's almost like they go out of the way to be vapid at times you know you, well, you, you follow all these i mean i follow all these bands all these musicians i'm like fucking talk about politics use your platform to address activist issues like it's especially when people have a position of privilege i'm sorry i'm gonna get on my soapbox for just no, a second please go ahead but like we just had the Grammys. No one talked about politics, of course, but everyone was or, or maybe I mean, like I watched it a few years ago and like Kendrick Lamar and Janelle Monet addressed activist issues. I was like, good for you. Yeah. No one else did. And walking down here, we're in New York City, passing storefront after storefront featuring all these incredibly wealthy actors and musicians selling products. And I was like, well, you've got a platform. If you're a Kardashian, if you're something, you're worth hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, do something with it. You know, don't just use your use your celebrity to get more celebrity. Don't just use your fame to generate more wealth. Like it's it's almost sinful as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, you know, you are definitely one of the people that, you know, walk the walk and talk the talk for sure 100 that's one thing that i know about you even if um obviously even if i'm not like vegan or whatever um uh, but i always respect it um you know i have a friend that lives in uh ohio he's been vegan for his whole life animal sanctuary all that other stuff so a lot of the stuff that i know mm -hmm. from there is from him punk rock guy tour manager for a while um so I, and and the thing is like you're talking about like aggression and, and punk rock 
I think it's just because certain people, especially the people in the documentary, had like passion about what they were singing. And what I love, an another thing that you did, because when you when you make a documentary, just like Moby Doc as well, you throw in something that's kind of like interesting. It's beyond like a normal documentary. And I thought the choir singing Cats and Dogs by <laughs> Gorilla Biscuits um, was a really cool idea. So how'd you come up with that? That, well, partially it's the goal with almost everything is like, how do you wake people up? Sure. How do you pe keep people from turning off your content? How do you, you know, yeah, like, yeah. and sometimes that's in a self-interested way of like, oh, if you're playing a concert, like, how do you keep people from walking out? It's like, or if you're doing a DJ set, how do you keep from getting fired? You know, and part of it is wake people up constantly. Like how many times have you been to see a band where after the third song, you're like, okay, I get it. I guess I'll go home. Like there's not much reason to stay because like second song sounds like the third song, fourth song sounds like the second song. Like it's like after a while, you're like, I, okay, wake me up, band. Like do something that will actually justify my staying here. Mm. And so with Moby Doc and with the punk rock vegan movie, the idea was to constantly wake people up in a ridiculous way, you know, like, as I said, being interviewed by a dog at a spa, you know, <laughs> or having a, a choir sing cats and dogs. So the idea was just, okay, how do I constantly wake, like, keep people from thinking they know what's coming next? Yeah. And I'm, I don't think I'm good at it, but I think it's like, I mean, there is a sort of, I mean, it'd, be, it'd sound a little too much like a grad student, but there's like a situationist aspect to it or fluxus, which is, you know, Yoko Ono was part of that, where it's the idea of like you go out and you challenge people a little bit. And even if they're annoyed and even if you do it badly, you've woken them up. And so the choir singing Cats and Dogs, I was like, how do, how do we do punk? How do we communicate punk rock, like some of the best punk rock lyrics ever written in a, in a way that will actually reach people. Absolutely. Walter is one of the, my favorite songwriters on the planet. Yeah, he's, and he's so delightful. Uh, yeah, I mean, all the, the – I mean, Walter and Arthur and Siv. They just and played like, Philly. Yeah. Uh, my friend John booked the show, like a couple of shows for the Mountain Philly, and it's, yeah. they're still doing it. It's amazing. Um, but so I, I want to switch gears for a second. Like you, you're talking about grabbing people's attentions, and I always wonder – so like you know, you start off – playing in rock bands and then later on you know you're DJing right and and when I go see for example like hip-hop live hip-hop sometimes they lose the crowd because it's like I don't know they can't really relay it it's almost like listening to to like a, a CD or something so when you made that switch you're there you know behind like the the, the either turntables or catching people in a different way like how do you reach people in a festival like how did you learn how to do that uh do you know, I think a part of it came from, you know, because my background as a musician is so strange. When I was very young, I studied music theory, classical music. I was forced to play jazz fusion by my guitar teacher yeah. when I was around 12 or 13. And then I discovered The Clash and Elvis Costello and Gary Newman and then Gang of Four and the Sex Pistols. And so I kind of un tried to not unlearn, but I definitely like focused more on playing punk rock and new wave sort of 1980 81 and then i went to college i'll try and keep it brief because i don't want to be too self-involved i love it okay then i went to college 
to be a philosophy major, dropped out, and I was like a 19-year-old college dropout sleeping on my mom's couch, broke, depressed. All my friends were out doing fun, interesting things like going to fancy schools and meeting the people they were going to get married to. And, and meanwhile, like I was just a drunk sleeping on my mom's couch. And a friend of mine had a bar in Port Chester, New York called The Beat, and he felt sorry for me. So he gave me a job on Monday night DJing, paid me $20 a night for six hours of work. And on average, there would be five to 10 people in the bar while I DJed. But I learned pretty quickly to keep myself interested and ultimately to keep from getting fired. I had to keep it interesting. And this was also, this was the early 80s. So it was a very eclectic time in and around New York for oh, music. You, you know, like you call it an incubator, and I agree. Yeah, like you would go to Danceteria and you would, be, the Bad Brains would be playing on the first floor, Mission of Burma would be in the basement, there'd be a new wave gothic oh, DJ geez. on the third floor, and then a hip hop DJ above that, and then a gay disco at the top. Like it was just this eclecticism. And a lot of the music that came out of that period is very eclectic. Rick Rubin came out of that period, the Beastie Boys, Madonna, Jean-Michel Basquiat, um, even Rob Zombie. Like he, Rob Zombie Absolutely. was at Parsons with my friend John or Jim, I forget, and drew the second seven inch for our hardcore band, Vatican Commandos. Oh, that I didn't know. Yeah. So uh, Hit Squad? Yeah. Uh, no, Hit Squad was the first one. The second one was called Just a Frisbee. I wasn't playing on it. They okay. kicked me out of the band because yeah. I was such a dick. But uh, <laughs> um, so that what you're describing that sort of like how do you keep people interested yes. um and what i've learned is there are some people like some teachers and i'm not maligning them but like teachers or different types of academics or musicians who have always been celebrated who have never had to figure out how to keep people's attention but when you're djing in a dive bar and if you don't keep people's attention, you get fired. You learn pretty quickly how to wake a crowd up and how to wake yourself up. Absolutely. And so that's, I think, where it was sort of encoded into my DNA. And then the corollary to that is, as we mentioned, going out to shows and being so bored when the band wasn't being generous. You know, like um, basically like – you would call like whenever a band would say like, okay, we're going to play a couple of new songs. Like on tour, those are what we call beer songs. Sure. Cause that means, or phone songs mean that's when everyone goes to like check their phone or get a beer. And how do you not do that? Like how do you keep people interested? Yeah. And no, which doesn't mean pandering. It doesn't mean dumbing it down. It doesn't mean compromising. It just means, I guess there's almost an extrapolation where you're sort of thinking, okay, if I was in the audience, yeah, what yeah. would I want? So it's funny. So like I play music too. And like to me, like, you know, as a musician, you always want to play your new stuff because mm -hmm. you think you're, if you don't think your new stuff is the best, then I don't know what to tell you. It's always like whenever we're done or anyone I feel like is done making a record, you're like, that's the best record I've ever done. And I guarantee you, no one in the audience agrees with us. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like. I guarantee you right now, my friends in Duran Duran are convinced that their new record is the best record they've ever made. And I guarantee you when I go to see them live, I will only want to hear the hits, which isn't a criticism of them or 
the new music, but no, yeah, or, or your band. Like if your fans go to see your band, we want hits. You want, but that's the funny thing. So like yeah. when when I go see like let's say Alkaline Trio and they play new stuff. I like it, but like when they play the old stuff, I'm like, yeah, I'm all about it. You know, it's yeah. the same thing, but it's like the perspective of being in the audience, but also like the musician. Cause the, like, I can't imagine being in a band and not writing new stuff. You know, like you always want to make stuff like your catalog still goes. And then I know you're doing like the, you did re, uh, no resounds coming out. Mm-hmm. And then you did, um, what was the one with, um, reprise, it was reprise. One, yeah, with like Chris Christopherson, Mark Lanigan. Oh, how cool is that? I like Mark Lanigan. Mark was such a delightful person. Oh, like, love that song. One thing, and I'm gonna try and put my emotions in a box, but like right before he died, I was able to talk to him. And because you know, so basically, there's a song that he and I wrote called The Lonely Night. Mm, so and I, good. And I told him that I was trying to get Chris Christofferson to duet with us, or with him rather. And he was so excited. And I sent him the demo and he loved it. And he was he was like, he was like, you know, I mean, this is Mark Lanigan, who everyone thinks is super tough, and he was just not. He was a delightful, emotional person. But right before he died, I was able to finally send him the vinyl of he and Chris Christofferson oh. singing on reprise with the orchestra. And he wrote back and he was so touched. He was like, I'm just, he was lying in his hospital bed crying oh and, and then he died. Yeah. So I, I, not to narcissistically make his suffering and death in any way about me, but no. I felt very privileged to have given him a moment before he died of hopefully what was a really a special moment. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's getting me choked up a little bit. Um, that guy was super talented. And one of the questions that I had for you was how, what it was like working with him. Um, well, we can, I mean, so, so when I first met Mark, I was so intimidated because mm. he's, he was tall and he had that voice, voice and he seemed like the dark Lord. Like he just seemed so scary. Um, you know, and he had been friends with Nick Cave and friends with Jeffrey Lee Pierce and he, you know, had been on SST like he was so. Yeah, that's right. Was, and he, you know, was in a band with some of the guys from, um, who are those drug addicts in the desert? Stone yeah, yeah. Um, so. I love those records. Um, and I just, so I met him and I assumed he was just going to be this mean, scary person and he was delightful. He lived yeah. in Glendale with his girlfriend, I think, then his wife. And just, we, we used to hang out. We would go to meetings together. Just a delightful, like, smart, kind. And also, I've worked with so many singers in my life. Yeah, you totally. I've like, worked with everybody from Ozzy to the Beastie Boys to Britney Spears to Metallica to on and on and on. And, like I, and he, this is going to sound very odd, and he might not want me to say this, the most professional singer I've ever worked with. Meaning when we worked on music, he showed up and had rehearsed and perfected his part. Like I've some singers I've worked with, like like Ozzy, God bless him. It yeah. took us three days in three different cities to even begin to get vocal takes. We started in London, came to New York, and then LA. And like I love Ozzy, but like it was a challenge. Yeah. Mark Lanigan drives over from Glendale, turn on the mic, and in one take, it's per- I was like, that's perfect. Like, because he, he had gotten everything so perfected beforehand. Yeah. 
I mean, I think like Ozzy also, even from the Sabbath days, definitely had his help. You know, Geezer writing the lyrics and yeah. all that other stuff. You know, he just had the voice for it, you know. Um, fun fact, just as an aside, Geezer is the original musical vegan. Geezer, oh. Geezer Butler's been a vegan since, I think, 71. Okay. Yeah, and because and in the documentary, um, I guess everyone talked about crass. Yeah. And like, um, you know, obviously I'm wearing a Smith shirt <laughs> under here. Um, meat is murder is another thing that I remember seeing, you know? Yeah. And, um, I think in the documentary they talked about how like a lot of it came maybe from like London or that area, right? Yeah. The, well, so there are two origins that I, that I, and, and I, I think I did a bad job in finding out what people had been doing before. Okay. And cause in the documentary, I kind of treat punk rock as year zero. Because for a lot of people, it was, you know, oh, like, it. yeah, you're right. Yeah. Like, there's no mention of anybody's history in the movie, you know, from Crass to The Damned to MDC, uh, UK Subs, X Ray Specs. Like, I don't really talk about what anyone was doing before they became punk rockers. Yeah. You know, Steve Ignorant from Crass, his interview starts with him seeing The Clash. Yes. And I didn't want to show, I mean, this is. Because when I was growing up, punk rock for us was year zero. You know, like in a literal way, when I was in high school, my friends and I wouldn't listen to music made before 1976. Okay. We wouldn't listen to music made by people with long hair. This is how... I relate. relate. And eventually, of course, that ceased to be the case. And a big turning point was when I saw Black Flag, because I was a big, huge Black Flag fan. is like one of my favorite guitar players of all time. Um... And so my friends and I, I think it was like maybe the third time we saw them and Henry had grown his hair long yep. and we were like, wait, he's our, he's our punk rock God and he has long hair and what's going on. And like, and Greg Ginn loves Sabbath yep. and the Stooges. So like all, we were like, okay, you know what? Maybe we have to open our minds a little bit and listen to music made before 1976 and made by people with long hair. But so for the movie... I don't really talk about what led people to becoming vegan punk rockers at first. Like Steve Absolutely. Ignorant. Yeah, you're right. I just like he was, you know, a vegan punk rocker in 1976. Captain Sensible became a vegan punk rocker because of spending time with Crass. Yeah, because um, yeah, even like you started like Gene Vincent and I was like, oh, I never thought of it like that, you know. And that's sort of the, the punk approach of yeah. like, you know, like the but as far as like. The vegan, so I talk about the history of punk, but I don't talk about the history of veganism. I will, and sorry for rambling on so no, much, I, but I've had a lot of coffee. Yeah, please. Um, the, I did make a weird movie. It's like a little short cartoon. It's called The History of Animal Rights, and it ends with Jane Goodall. So it starts with the Buddha and goes through everybody from Cesar Chavez and Emmanuel Kant and Jeremy Bentham and on and on and on and on. Um, Gandhi. So maybe I should have included that in the movie. Is that up online? Yes. I think it's just called The History of Animal Rights or something. So it's funny. Jane Goodall, just a total aside here. Um, my friend who does all our flyers for the podcast and like the band mm-hmm. stuff. Anytime she sends me something, I'm so thankful. So I just wrote, who's better than you? And she always writes Jane Goodall. So you want to, can I, I'm going to. Have a good name dropping story. Sure. Okay. So 
It's a really good name dropping story. So Please I was having br- I was having brunch with Leo DiCaprio and Jane Goodall, yeah. as you do in Los Angeles. Can I just? Oh, so I was having brunch with Jane Goodall and Leo DiCaprio, as you do in Los Angeles. And Jane Goodall is a militant vegan, like unapologetic, hardcore, militant vegan. And Leo, understandably, loves her, like reveres Jane Goodall. And she told him that he needed to be vegan, like in no uncertain terms. You know, and it was kind of, it was kind of because he looked very chastened because he's he's an environmentalist, an amazing activist. But I don't know if he's quite in the vegan camp yet. And she really sort of like let him know like, okay, you're an environmentalist. You care about the climate. You have to be vegan. So that's my good name dropping story. I love it. Yeah, that's great. Um, so to, to go back to what you were saying, like growing up. So like I think we're like maybe 10 years apart as far as like, you know, influence. Um, I remember being like rejecting Led Zeppelin, like all those bands. I was just like, no, I, I – I couldn't even get into Fugazi because it wasn't minor threat <laughs> to me. I'm just like, I'm like, this is what it is. And like, I, to me, like the Beatles and like Zeppelin and all those bands were like my parents music. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm like, no, I want something completely different. And then as I got older, you realize like, oh, that's pretty fucking good. Like, you know, Sabbath volume four is pretty awesome right now, you know? And the first Stooges album. Yeah. But we had the same thing of rejecting as I said, music made by people with long hair and then eventually falling in love with music made by people with long hair (laughs) once we realized that we were being so close-minded. Another turning point was I was listening to an interview with Keith Levine, who was the original Public Image Limited guitar player and on WNYU. And he, the journalist said, oh, I see you have a Walkman. What's on your Walkman? And Keith Levine said, you're not going to like it. And the the guy in WMU said, no, what is it? And he said, I'm listening to Led Zeppelin 4. And I was like, oh, my God. So Henry Rollins has long hair. Keith Levine's listening to Led Zeppelin. Like, does this mean I have to listen to music made by people with long hair? Yeah. And it turns out I did. But, you know, I wouldn't have wanted to grow up any different. You know, it's like there, there's something about, like, that rebellion where it's like, nah, I don't want that, you know. Even, and, like, to bring it back to veganism, it's like, well, why do I have to eat this? I don't want that. You know, mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense to me. You know, in that approach. Also, one of the things that I remember you said, um, so you recorded, maybe it was a Clash song off the transistor radio, mm. right? I did the same thing with like, so um, I was a big, I, I liked Hendrix before I, I, got, I was old enough to even know what it was. And I one day I heard Purple Haze, which I know you cover. And I was like, what is this? And I remember just taking like a shitty recorder and putting it to the TV and like recording it. So like, yeah. yeah, that was my first exposure to punk rock was taping The Clash off the radio, uh, I Fought the Law, in 1977, 78, whenever, that, whenever the first Clash album came out. And I was 13, and I was just like what you just described, holding a microphone up to a transistor radio, recording it on a dictaphone, one of those tiny little cassettes, and then listening to it over and over again. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, and then also just so like we go from there and also like I know I think you said the Vatican Commandos first practice was 79 and the first song you guys did was White Riot. We tried to. Well, um, well we were too nervous to play our own songs. Okay. And so we had to learn other people's Absolutely. songs. And at that point, I mean, this was, yeah, 79, 1980. 
we didn't have many records because um, buying records was expensive and we were sure. all like you know we were all 15 years old so like the only income you could have was like cutting grass yeah and so i owned a couple david bowie records a lot of grass in connecticut yep and uh and jim the bass player had the first clash album and i th- yeah and i think the only other punk rock record we had was uh Never mind the bollocks. Okay, Tape yeah. taped from a friend of mine, and so yeah, our first cover. I think it was White Riot. Um, we cover career opportunities. Love that one. Way too complicated for us when we were ah. fifteen, and we also I think we did Pretty Vacant. Great. Um, like we were basically any song that was simple enough for us to learn because yeah. we were fifteen year old kids, and but then we finally worked up our nerve to start writing songs that we were because. If you remember that like high school thing of like you're just so terrified to go to your friends and say, I wrote a song. Can I play it for you? Like that was the scariest thing I could, any of us could imagine. Yeah. And um, so like I, I was trying to like think of like the contrast to like where, where you took all the good parts of like punk rock and counterculture. And like here I am in the 90s and I remember <laughs> taking the bad parts because where never mind <laughs> the Pollocks like influenced you. You know, in in the first Clash record, to me, like we watched Sid and Nancy, and I, I, I we romanticized like drugs, you know, and that's what it was. Like now, I've been sober since '98. I know you've been sober as well, um, so it's just funny, like that. Like maybe like the '80s had more to be angry about, and the '90s we were just super, like I don't know. Well, I I mean, who knows? I mean, Sid and Nancy. What frustrates me is I can't find that anywhere. Like oh. I saw it when it came out. I saw it in the theater. Okay. It's not stream it. You can't stream it. For some reason, it's one of those movies. I can get you a copy. I don't have a, a player. I don't have a DVD no, player. No, I can get. I'll send her. I'll send Natalie the link. I, oh, okay. I, I got a guy who get. I'll get it for you. Okay, good. Because I've I've wanted to go. Because also Gary Oldman. Yeah. I love Gary Oldman now, but like every role he chooses, he almost seems to choose roles where he looks terrible, which is great. Like if you watch Slow Horses, like he looks so disgusting. And True then, romance. Yeah, and he or he played. Winston Churchill, he played like he always, or even in um the Good Shepherd, no, not the Good Shepherd, that uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, like he always looks like an old kind of rotten man. Yeah, and you sort of forget like in Sid and Nancy, like he was so young and handsome. Um, so that's an aside, like yeah, for sure. I so I do really want to go back and rewatch Sid and Nancy, but the I think one other aspect is that in the eighties apart from the clash there was no such thing as major label punk rock you know everything was diy self-generated underground and it was all about it was clean living you know like there were some people in the 80s you know in the punk rock world in in the states who were you know drinking or doing drugs but for the most part it was just like suburban guys like ian mckay and then in the 90s, obviously, in around 1992, every major label found punk rock as a way to make a lot of money. And that's when the onslaught of, we'll call it like, democratized punk rock happened. And it was no longer, I mean, still, there were principles and ideals, but obviously, like, I love The Offspring. It's real hard to find, like, lyrical principles in an Offspring song, about, except for, like, being in Orange County and not having sex with someone, you know, like, and I'm not criticizing them. I think they're super fun, but like Blink-182, like, 
real fun. For sure. But not principled. You yeah. know, like as opposed to in the 80s, it was all about this, this principle, you know. Even the Bad Brains. I mean, like every Bad Brain song pretty much has a principle behind it. And it just became part of that ethos. And so as a result, there wasn't much room for degeneracy. Yeah. That. But then I remember just as a rambling aside, playing a show, a K-Rock show, one of their – K-Rock's the big station in L.A. Yeah, absolutely. No, they, they, they came out of here. We and, used to go to their Nodo sh- Lodo show. Um, and so this was a it was at the, some stadium in Anaheim, and for some reason they asked me to be on the bill, and everything else was like corn, <laughs> okay. destroyed, limp biscuit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, oh, punk rock is dead. Like this oh, is this yeah. is this this is what it's become. Like they're backstage, like openly. And I'm not I'm sober now. I don't judge people's choices, but they were just like doing coke everywhere and like it was so degenerate and i was like oh so this is what happened like this is like and i was really glad to have grown up in that era of underground principled punk rock because it once it's in your dna it's hard to get away from that you're right and and you know like you were there so like i mean we're we're in new york right now um you haven't lived here in a minute but like this place is the greatest you know mm-hmm. um so when when you come here you know after not being here for a while like what's something that you love to do that you need to do or maybe like a memory that pops up well every because I, mean, I was born here and i spent most of my life living here harlem every last inch of the city from i mean self-involvedly every last inch has a memory for me yeah exactly. you know like i'm yeah. um, I mean, like I was walking here, we're in Times Square right now, mm-hmm. like walking through Times Square, I was remembering one of the most wonderful New York experiences I ever had is it's probably not still there, but there used to be a sound installation on like the corner of like 46th and Broadway, and it was under a subway grate. And I don't remember the name of the the artist who did it, but basically there were these giant speakers under a subway grate. And if you walked past it, you would just think of some industrial noise, but it was intentional. And when you were standing over the speakers, the rest of the sound of the city disappeared. And it was one of the most fast, and there was no plaque. There was nothing. I read about it in The New Yorker. Mm. And so some friends and I went there. When you stood in the middle of this sound, all the sound of the city disappeared. Um, is that it? We're li- um, let's see who the artist was. Max Newhouse. Yeah, so that sound installation was called Times Square. Yeah. And my friends and I discovered it. And every time we were – this is at the time I was living in an abandoned factory in Connecticut. Yeah. And we would come to New York and make pilgrimages to go to this sound installation because no one knew about it. I mean as far as we could tell. And we would have picnics on top of it. So we would like – 1988 sit on a subway grate in Times Square having picnics over this sound installation and it was the most interesting fascinating thing so walking down here I was just reminded of that or like there used to be tons of recording studios in in and around Times Square and so like looking up and remembering like where I mixed some of the songs on my album play or where like I worked with Ozzy where I did all sorts of weird things. So it's 
every inch. Every inch. You know, walking down here, looking at the Museum of Natural History and remembering being three years old, going there with my mom and my grandfather and seeing the big blue whale, which I think is a lot of people's first experience of New York and being just amazed that anything that big existed. When you live somewhere, it's true. Like, so like I I wrote a song where that's what it was like growing up on Long Island. I feel like when you live there long enough, like every block, everything you go is like a ghost, but a cool ghost. You're like, oh, Mm -hmm. remember this and that. And man, what a great time for sure. Um, Also, so I I do want to go back to Harlem because you did do a song with ASAP Rocky, which is amazing. Uh, But I I do want to talk about coming from, so you're coming from Connecticut to here. I was doing the same thing from Long Island, same, you know, and we came here to basically soap, you know, like soak up as much like um, culture and random Mm -hmm. shit, you know, that we could, like we would go to Yellow Rat Bastard, we would go to like the Beastie Boys store, like and everything, and then just go back home and like, you know, wear all the shit. Um, So back in those early 80s, like what were some of the spots that you needed to hit? Well, because we would do the exact same thing. Like you had Long Island Railroad, we had Metro North. If if we had been in New Jersey, it would have been New Jersey Transit. Sure. I mean, basically, whenever I talk to someone who grew up around New York, there's that immediate kinship of like, okay, the last train back, you know, like yeah, yeah, that or the first train back, you know, that was when I started drinking. Is like getting that four forty five, what they called the milk train. Hell yeah. Um, <laughs> So in the early 80s, the place we always went was um, Canal Jeans, which I don't think has existed for a long time. Uh, And we would go to Trash in Vaudeville once we discovered St. Mark's. And we go to Sounds. Um, And in terms of venues, we went anywhere and everywhere. I mean, um, A7, I still remember like, the first time we went to A7 to see Kraut play. Wow. Uh, Astoria, Queens. Wait, no, A7 was right. No, no, the... I'm just saying like they're oh, from Astoria. Because yeah. I, I, like, I have a friend, yeah. shout out to Joe from Outburst. And like he was like, Kraut, like, Kraut was like all their heroes. Well, Crowder, I mean, I still listen to yeah, Kraut. Like... I mean, like um, Unemployed, is. I bought the 7-inch when it came out because it was so good. Yeah. Uh, Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols produced them. Oh, A little bit of trivia. So I went to go see Kraut at A7. My friends and I, we thought we were going to a concert because we were 15. So we got there at 8.30. It was a bar. It opened at 10. So we sat outside until 10. We went in <laughs> and we're the only people in the bar because this is back in 81 or 82 when you could be 15 and go to bars. And we asked the bartender, we're like, so when does the band go on? And he was like, oh, Kraut, 2 a.m. And it turns out it was Dougie from Kraut. The guitar player was the bartender. Yeah. And later, because I was a sort of quasi straight edge person, so I had the X on the back of my hand. So Dougie held me down and poured alcohol on my hand to wipe the X off the back of my hand. And I guess it was aggressive, but it was also really funny. It is pretty funny. And it was like... I was so thrilled that like Dougie from Kraut, which in my mind, like that's a rock star. Granted, yeah. he was the bartender at A7. Sure. But like having him wipe the X off my hand with, I don't know, 151 rum or something. Yeah. And, and so speaking of the X, you know, like for me, you know, a lot of my friends, you know, jokingly say, you know, you live life going, what would Ian McKay do? So what was, 
what was the what was the importance of someone like that? Like, because you probably saw Minor Threat like just go yeah. and go, right? Well, so and f- Ian was the first rock star I ever met. They had played at Great Gildersleeves, and I introduced myself after their show, and I was so formal, and I just said, "Oh, Mr. Mackay, um, <laughs> my, my name is Moby," and I just want to say like. I really enjoyed your show and I'm a big fan of your music. Yeah. And he was like, because I thought he was a rock star. And he's like, to, to be fair, he's like loading amps into a van. Sure. But in my mind, like, wow, he's in his 20s. Yeah. And, he's, <laughs> and like, and he has, he's made records. Like, I was like, he's the biggest rock star on the planet. Um, Two years back then made a huge difference. Oh, yeah. I mean, when you're 17 and someone's 20, you're yeah. like, they're a grown up. Like, they might as well be president. Yep. Um, but one of the first, Hardcore records I ever bought was uh, in my eyes, oh, so good. Um, or out of step. That was a f- okay, and because I had been in D.C. and I got so lucky, I was in D.C. visiting a friend, eighty two, eighty one, and I really wanted to buy the message by Grandmaster Flash because I had heard it on the radio and I loved that song. Probably mind blowing to hear it for yeah. the first time, right? And so I went into this record store in Georgetown to buy the message. And as I was paying for it, the amazingly beautiful punk rock lady behind the counter said, oh, do you like alternative or punk? And I was like, yeah. And she said, well, there's this local band. They're friends of mine called Minor Threat. You should buy this 7-inch. And so I bought the 7-inch, and it was on red vinyl. And, of course, it's phenomenal. Mm. But then the reason I tell the story is fast forward multiple decades, I decided to sell all my records and 99% of my equipment that wasn't being used sure. and give the money to this organization called the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. And the most expensive record that got sold was that Minor Threat 7-inch. I think it was like $5,000. Holy shit. And it, um, and it went for a good cause. That's Yeah. God. But I just saw the randomness of like being in this record store in Georgetown buying out of step. Yeah. Um, another thing too, like, so it's funny when you look back now at, at, at like the misfits, right? Like the misfits are like a larger than life thing. Did you ever get a chance to watch them? Because I, I oh mean, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. like, what was that like? Well, the misfits, um, as my crimson ghost tattoo. Yeah. Cause Doyle is also in, yes, he's in, he's a movie. in a, yeah, yeah. such a delightful human being sure. and such a militant vegan. He and Alyssa oh, yeah. from Arch Enemy. But so in 1982, I went to go see the Misfits at this bar in Bridgeport, Connecticut called Pogo's, which is luckily where my friends and I got to see tons of bands, Pogo's and the Anthrax, because so many bands would play in New York and then play in Boston. And in between, they would stop in Connecticut. So we saw everybody, you know, Black Flag, Bad Brains, Gun Club, Circle Jerks, Misfits would all play at this little bar in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And the Misfits were amazing, of course. Mm. But then the next day, I was writing my college essay in the library, and my ears were ringing because the Misfits had been so loud. I was 15 or 16. And I remember thinking, oh, if I want to be a musician, I need to protect my ears. So pretty much every time since then that I've been around loud music, I've worn earplugs. That's amazing. Or something in my ears. All because of the Misfits making my ears ring when I was 15. (laughs) So... You know, like you get a guy like you that like learns 
like that one time and then you get somebody like me that probably had that same thing happen at 15 and it was <laughs> like i don't know like 10 years ago where i was just like i should wear earplugs because like I'm, well, I'm someone that needs to learn a lot of times in a row but then again like regarding sobriety when i was 13 years old i saw a friend of mine od because okay. we'd been like I started doing drugs and drinking when I was 10. Yeah. And when I was 13, my friend Dave and I had this crazy night where we smoked a bunch of hash. We did a bunch of pills. His sister, who'd been in a mental institution, gave him, drank a bunch of whatever we could get our hands on. And he ended up passing out and being intubated by EMTs. So that's at 13. And I didn't get sober until I was what's 43. Yeah. So clearly... It, there's some things where it took me right, a so I, long time. Take it back. I mean, so it was like for 35 years yeah. of pretty much consistent alcohol and drug abuce with little bouts of. Right here now. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, 2008, I was like, okay, maybe it's time to finally stop doing these things that are killing me. And, and the thing, too, like, you know, because you said that you. you kind of fell into like the cliche around the like the play um 18 songs right like where mm -hmm. you, the lifestyle and and i don't see how it how you could avoid it because it's like it just you know like the popularity of that record especially after like um animal rights did what it did what do you feel of that record now i i think it's a great record animal rights i'm super proud that i was able not I mean, not proud but i'm very i'm very happy that I was able to make it. Um, it's pretty fucking punk rock when you think of you doing that. It it made sense at the time. Yeah. Uh, so what happened around the album Animal Rights is – because Animal Rights is a very fast, very aggressive, very loud sort of punk slash industrial sure. record. And I had been playing festivals in the mid-90s. And because I was from the rave world at this point, I was in the rave tent. And I remember this one festival in Denmark. And in the rave tent, everyone was just standing around. And on the main stage, I think Biohazard, Sepultura, and Iggy Pop were playing. And everyone was dancing and going crazy. And I was like, wait, so hold on. What's going on here? So the rave tent, people are just standing around. And it's kind of boring. But over on the metal punk stage, people are dancing and going crazy. I was like, oh, punk and metal have become like the energy of rave culture is now in punk and metal. So I made animal rights inspired by that. Yeah. And I kind of thought people would respond a little better than they did. Yeah. Um, because when I was growing up, I thought musicians, like when you choose to be a musician, when you choose to not have a real job, you're choosing to do unexpected things. You're choosing to do things that might occasionally challenge people you know like the clash having oh. grandmaster flash open up for them at bonds sure. or even i mean like having reggae tracks having hip-hop tracks having folk tracks david bowie you know make giving up half of an album for ambient music lou reed making metal machine music uh, on and on and on like i thought the idea was to challenge and so I'm not saying Animal Rights is good, but it was. I thought it was sort of a challenging record, and I thought slash hoped that maybe the music establishment would say, oh, you know what? We don't like this record, but good for you for making it. And I realized, oh, no, that's not the world. The world in which we live, sadly, more often than not, 
is careers. Mm. You know, it's predictable. And, and it's year after year doing the same thing and never upsetting the machine, as it were. I feel like it would go over well these days, you know, like know. streaming. <laughs> I'm just telling you, like, it's just like, I feel like, like streaming maybe makes everyone kind of like a little bit more open, you know, that aren't like you and I, mm-hmm. you and I would have, even if you didn't make animal rice, would have been like, hey, it's pretty cool. Uh, but like streaming, like younger kids are like, you know, they'll listen to like all these like random things. And I feel like, um, I don't know, I feel like it would have gone over <laughs> better. I mean, and again, so I, I don't know. I mean, I've gone back and listened to it and I'm like, you know what? What an odd, and I don't want to say this in a self-aggrandizing way. I was like, what an odd, interesting record. Like it's a really, like, so I, I yeah, I'm, yes. I'm thrilled that I made it and I'm almost thrilled that it alienated almost everybody. Can I tell you in a good fit of name dropping who it didn't alienate? Sure. Okay. So the three people I know who liked that movie, Joe Strummer. Mm. I'm sorry, record, not movie. Um, Bono. Um, <laughs> Ax- Axl Rose. Okay. These are all people who told me that they liked the record. Yeah. They liked Animal Rights. But the last one, which was so interesting, is I got a piece of fan mail from Terrence Trent Darby. Do you remember Terrence Trent Darby? Yeah, so Terrence Trent Darby wrote me a piece of fan mail on Terrence Trent Darby official stationery, which was purple, (laughs) telling me how much he liked animal rights and how much he applauded me for making it. And I've never met Terrence Trent Darby, but I just think it's amazing that Terrence Trent Darby took time out of his day to write me a piece of fan mail. And the thing too, like, you know, like as a songwriter, a composer, all that other stuff, um, you know, you do want to put something out that people connect with, but like the one thing that I, that I found surprising, which I didn't know at the time, but like, you know, reading up on this stuff was you kind of wanted to just stop playing music, which is like pretty devastating. Like that's a pretty devastating blow. The only other blow I could think of is like when Rivers Cuomo wrote Pinkerton and like, you know, uh, Rolling Stone was like worst album of the year or whatever. He went away for like six years. So I mean, that's that's pretty extreme to not want to play music anymore. Oh, well, I would never – it never crossed my mind to not want to play music. Or release then. Um, it has on – and even on a daily if not hourly basis, like there's always a part of me that just wants to reject everything. Mm-hmm. Like I like what we're doing. Okay. Um, I like a lot of – there are many aspects of – putting music or art or movies out into the world that I do appreciate, but I hate our culture, Mm. like abject, complete contempt for our cult. I mean, I just, it's the fact that it is just based on misery. And I mean, I don't want to sound too grim, but I'm, this is my, my inner thought is like our culture is horrifying and people like, Oh, but what about so-and-so? I was like, Okay, we're destroying the only home we have. We kill a trillion animals a year. Look at the United States. Every industry either causes sickness or exists to fix the sickness that the other industries cause. Like our our, our species is broken. Our culture is broken. So I – there's always almost like – once an hour I think to myself like I just want to – I want to run away. Like you just want to like – 
I don't know, go somewhere in the middle of nowhere and build giant walls and like never interact with humans again. Yeah. But there still is that desire to, in so far as you can, like move the needle towards a better future, you know? Yeah. And, but, and musically too. Okay. No. Uh, musically too. Um, so I, I just want to touch on real quick. I know you have Resound coming up. With, with the guys from The Temper Trap, which I fucking all, love. All sorts of weird people on that. Yeah. Like Margot Timmons from Cowboy Junkies singing Helpless. And um, yeah, th- this phenomenal singer, Gregory Porter. Um, it, I, I get confused as to who's on which For records. sure, there's a lot of um, guests. Uh, Temper Trap, just, I mean, like, just, I often say Sweet Disposition is one of the greatest songs ever written. Um, so that's coming out May 12th. And then also just to, to finish it up here, um, what was it like uh, working with ASAP Rocky, which I love? So it's Harlem. You both, you guys are Harlem. Yeah. So it's a it's a funny ish story. Sure. Um, the way he heard about me, because clearly there's no real world in which ASAP Rocky should be <laughs> familiar with me or my music. Yeah. And I've worked with a lot of hip hop people. I worked with Nas. I did a song with Public Enemy. Absolutely. Um, I have all that stuff. I wish. Yeah, I've worked time. with. Lots. I mean, like I, I was a hip hop squad. I mean, come on, mm-hmm. bomb squad is like the Shockley brothers. Yeah. Um, oh, poor old Green Street Studios. Well, Chung King and Green Street, those were wonderful places. Chung King, Sam Sever, all Dante gone. Ross. All gone. Yeah. Uh, but oh, and a little funny aside. Um, wait, why am I drawing a blank from Wu Tang to ASAP Rocky? So I was having dinner with okay why am i completely drawing a blank the guy from wu-tang rizza rizza yeah why, uh, yeah like i was thinking sizza i was like no that's not no. right so rizza and i were having dinner a couple of years ago because he's also a hardcore Absolutely. vegan and there was this club in new york called mars where i yeah, used yeah. to dj and i would if if i was playing on the main floor i'd play house music if i was playing on the third floor you'd play reggae or funk but on the second floor you play hip-hop mm. And he used to hang out there and we were reminiscing about like, you know, this is the late eighties, the date, like Big Daddy Kane and oh, Eric yeah. B and Eric Rakim, B. Rakim and like yeah. those records. Um, and De La Soul. Yep. So yeah. So obviously I, Clark Kent was another DJ back. In fact, Clark Kent was the person who made me realize I should not be a hip hop DJ. Cause one night we were DJing together in like 88, 89. <laughs> and he was a thousand times better than I was. Okay. And I was like, I can't compete with this. Like yeah. Clark Kent is just the the great – like he was doing stuff that I couldn't even imagine. For sure. So, okay, fast forward many, many decades and ASAP Rocky gets in touch with me because his best friend is British and his best friend's mom is a fan of mine. So ASAP Rocky had been at his friend's out. mom's house – you know, this woman in her 50s, and she was listening to some of my music. And that is how ASAP Rocky heard about me through his British friend's mom. I love it. And then when they asked me to be in the video, I said to Rocky, I was like, you don't want me in the video. Like, like trust me, you really do not want. Oh, he definitely does. And so they filmed me and I was like, yeah, but if you put me in the video, people are going to be asking, like, why did you ask your business manager to be in the video? Yeah. Like, like who's why is there a 55 year old white guy in this super cool video with like BMX and skateboarding? Yeah. So like 
I'm in the video for about one second, as it should be. Like, there really just is no reason that, for the bald middle-aged white guy to be group, in an ASAP Rocky video. That group, very smart songwriters. Like, when they came out maybe like 10-ish, 10, 15 years ago, they kind of blew me away for like a new generation of just like really smart songwriters that were doing something different. And uh, his mom named him after Rakim. Oh really? Yeah, that's where. Oh, I did from. not know yeah. that. So okay, hey, listen, this was amazing. Um, check out Punk Rock Vegan. Uh, Punk Rock Vegan movie, and it's free. That's one thing I wanted to mention is when I was making Punk Rock Vegan movie, because I ended up being I, I shot it myself, and I'm obviously the composer and the graphic designer DIY. and the illustrator. DIY buddy. The DIY is one. It's fun. Like it's the other aspect of DIY is like. It's so much fun to figure out how to do stuff. Yes. Like a big part of the movie is stop motion animation. I'd never done stop motion before. So we got the software and my friends and I taught ourselves how to do stop motion for the movie. But we kept the costs as low as possible by doing it DIY. That way we can give it away for free. For sure. And there's – because you can't make activist content and try and profit from Absolutely. it. Or at least I, I – in good conscience, I certainly could not. Yeah. And you get to play the devil, which is... That was fun. really fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Awesome. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, uh, Big Picture Media. Thank you, uh, Dana, Natalie, Moby. Uh, you know, that's it, man. Thanks. Thanks.